Please stand for the reading of God's word, if you're able. We will be reading from the book of John, chapter 17, verses 11 to 13 and 20 to 23. These verses are from Jesus' prayer the night he was arrested. So starting with verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And now verses 20 to 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you've sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is God's word. Has anyone watched the news lately? <laughs> Two of you, yes. <laughs> Our nation is in disarray. And it's in disarray because either we don't have any foundations, we've left them, or we have the wrong foundations. It's people who stand for law, law and order who stormed the Capitol. It's people who used to champion tolerance who are promoting the cancel culture today. People who appeal to science who say that gender is now determined by what we feel rather than biology. And people who say that they care for the most vulnerable, who are championing the most aggressive abortion laws. People who stand on high moral ground and yet look the other way at the bad behavior of the politicians they support. Christians are not immune to this. Christians have been more, have often been about in politicians we trust more than God we trust. One of the individuals who stormed the Capitol did it in the name of Jesus. But beyond that, those who are saved by grace develop legalistic systems. Those who claim to live their lives for the glory of God live self-absorbed lives. Those who say that they want to promote God's kingdom pray more, my kingdom come than thy kingdom come. Christians look at the word of God and a revelation of God himself and yet scan it for the rules and regulations more than to know God. I'm not talking about all people, I'm not talking about all Christians, but I'm, there's enough of us that our nation is now in a quagmire of hatred and division. What's our foundation? 
Do we have one? Have we left it? Is the wrong foundation? I want each one of us this morning to search three questions. One, what is the foundation of my life? Secondly, is that foundation valid? And then thirdly, does that, how does that foundation impact my life and affect my life? And am I staying connected to it? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, which is living and active. It reveals you to us, but it also cuts into our hearts and minds to show us what we need to see about ourselves. We can't change the world as individuals right now, but we can change our worlds. Help us, Lord, to see you for who you are and life as it's meant to be and can be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning's message is going to say that God should be our foundation. And that's a valid foundation because he is the creator of life. And that all of life flows from who he is as a triune God. And so we're going to talk about our foundations, the nature of God who is that foundation, and then the life that flows from our God, our triune God in particular. So let's start with our foundations. What's the foundations of our lives? And it seems like we really have two choices. It's either us or God, humanism or theism. That life flows from uh, who we are in our philosophies, we determine what life means, or God determines what life means. By we, we're talking about humanism, or often we say, well, I believe in science, which science means evolution. So should the theory of evolution rule what life is about? Let me read to you a quote from Richard Dawkins, a tremendous proponent of evolution. He said this in a debate. I very much hope we do not revert to the idea of survival of the fittest in the planning of politics, our values, and our way of life. I'm a passionate Darwinian when it comes to explaining why we exist, but to live our lives in a Darwinian way, to make a society our Darwinian society, that would be very unpleasant sort of society in which to live. One of the reasons to learn about Darwinian evolution is to be an object lesson to learn how not to set up our values in our social lives. So if the foundation of our lives is science and evolution, and he's saying, don't live that way. Don't live according to your foundations because it would be a disaster. God should be our foundation. And our nation is where it is today because we have been moving from theism to humanism, from God to man-centered. The opening verses of the Bible say, in the beginning, God created. The creator determines what life is. Romans 9 brings out when Paul says, The pot doesn't say to the potter, make me this kind of vessel or that kind of vessel. No, the the potter has control over the clay. 
the creator makes out of that clay an expression of what his desires are, often an expression of himself. All artists' work are expressions of themselves. I don't understand Picasso's paintings. The best way to understand them is to begin to understand Picasso because those paintings flow from him. And when we can understand him, he may even tell us what it means. The best way to understand life is to turn to the Creator, to see who He is and how that life would flow, His artist's work in our universe and in our lives. Then we understand life and that becomes our foundation. And that's a valid foundation because the Creator does determine life, our values, the way we should live. You know, it's no coincidence that John chapter 1, verse 1, starts with the words, in the beginning. He wants us to think back to Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning. And he follows the same pattern by first, in verse 1, describing who God is. Doubling down on that in verse 2, and in verse 3 and 4, he says, all things were made through him, the word. Without him, not anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. Verse 1, God. Verses 3 and 4, he created. He created life. He is life, and the only way to understand life, to have the light of life, is to know the Creator God. And so, how is that Creator God described in verse 1? It reads, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, of course, becomes flesh, and it's Jesus. But it's saying two things, two things about the nature of God. He's with God, so he's distinct from God. Yet he is God himself, and there is one God. And that's what the Trinity is. And that verse is pregnant with the Trinity in the relationship of God the Father and the Word, God the Son. They are distinct as persons, but one in essence. The question we read today, our answer was, the Trinity. There are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, power, and glory. So, three persons, one God, very confusing to most of us. We try to come up with a number of illustrations, but they all fall short. The one I've used was the egg. You have the eggshell, you have the white of the egg, you have the yolk of the egg, so there's three parts, but it's just one egg. But that falls short because the Father, Son, Holy Spirit aren't three parts of God. Each by itself is, is God. The Word was God. 
yet there are three persons within God. Every illustration falls short. It's very difficult to understand the Trinity. I don't understand how it works, but I understand it has been revealed by God. One kid taught me a lesson about the Trinity. When I said, you know, when we add one plus one plus one, we get three. And so it's hard to say, how can three ones, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, be one God? It's three. And this uh, kid said to me, he says, yeah, but one times one times one equals one. He, he had to use a whole different method of calculation, but he got there, right? And I, and I think that's the same for us on earth. We're still doing addition. But in heaven, God's doing multiplication. It makes sense there, and maybe one day we'll make sense of it. So that, that's who God is. But what, what difference does it make that God's a trinity and that he's not a single-person God? Big implications. First, a triune God is unique from any other God that's worshipped. He is different from the gods of every other religion. Our culture doesn't like to acknowledge that today. In fact, a Christian pastor who was a guest chaplain at Congress just recently concluded his prayer in this way. We ask this in the name of the monotheistic god Brahma, a god known by many names, by many different faiths. And he's saying, there's only one God, all religions worship that one God, all monotheistic religions, we just have different names for that God. That's like saying, Indiana Jones and Bruce Daggett are the same person, we just have different names. I mean, we're both men about the same age, maybe a little bit like close to the same build. Uh, so we're really the same person with different names. Uh, no, one is a fictitious character who is an, an adventurer, and the other is ordinary me. Uh, but I'm real. And, and that's, it isn't God by any other name. God is three in one, very distinct, and that determines... Who he is in that relationship as Father and Son and Holy Spirit determines what life is and what all of life is. And we aren't going to understand life until we understand what's called the perichoresis, the relationship among Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the dynamic union and what is happening in that union. Theologian Ralph Smith said, obviously, an adequate statement of the worldview must find its center in the Trinity. For the Christian God himself is the heart of the Christian understanding of the world. So, let's take a peek into that inner dynamic of what's happening among Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And we're going to see three things. A love relationship a mutual glorification relationship, and incredible joy. We start in John 17, 22 and 23. And what we're looking for is 
qualities that happen in the relationship between Father, Son, Holy Spirit that God also wants us to be experiencing. Life flows from who he is. We read, the glory, Father, that you've given me, the glory relationship that we live in, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one, Father. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world would know you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And so we see as this dynamic union from eternity past, Father, Son, Holy Spirit in a deep love relationship, the love in which one person considers another more important than themselves. That's agape love. The father loving the son more than he loved himself. The son loving the father more than he loved his own life. And a mutual glorification. Now, there's two senses in glory. One is praise and honor. The other is importance. One of the words for glory is heavy. And when we say that matter is very heavy, it's weighty, it's important. And so to glorify someone is to hold them up as so important, so valuable, so significant. And to praise them and honor them. It's Jesus said, Father, glorify me so I may glorify you. It's the only reason Jesus wanted glory was so that glory could be passed to the Father himself. They were all about glorifying one another. That's the nature of God. And so when we see that, as Bruce Ware describes this more fully, he says, in this tri-personal relationship, the three persons love one another, support one another, assist one another, team with one another, honor one another, communicate with one another, and in everything respect and enjoy one another. There's no need, there's, uh, there are, they are in need of nothing but each other throughout eternity, such as the richness and fullness and completion of the social relationship that exists in the Trinity. Perfect joy. And that's what Jesus prayed for us in John 17, 13. He prays that they, his disciples, but ultimately all the disciples, including us, I pray that they may have, Jesus says, my joy fulfilled in them. What, what is Jesus' joy? The love relationship and mutual glorifying relationship with the Father through the Spirit. God wants us to have that same joy. So if we have a God who has this uh, perfect joy, why would he ever create anything? And when we understand why he would create something, then we begin to understand our purpose. Life flows, purpose flows from who God is. So why would God create the universe? Why would he create us when he had perfect joy? Well, 
Many of you have heard this illustration before, but we'll use it again. If God was a monopersonal God, if he was only one person, like most monotheistic religions worship, love could not be at the center of his being. Because he's existed from eternity past, the only person is himself. So the only love that could be the center is self-love. So why would that kind of God create anything? Well, it's like a person on a desert island. Why does someone on a desert island want someone to join them? They need them. I need somebody. I need somebody to, to have a relationship with, somebody to help me out, somebody to do things for me, maybe even honor me. A lot of people think of our God in that way. He's not saying glorify me because he needs that glory. He has it all. We can't glorify him more than Jesus Christ glorified him. He, he doesn't create us because he needs someone to love him. He already has that. The Father and Son already have that. None of us loves the Father and Son the way they love each other. So why does this God create anything? And the answer is because he is so loved, so other, he wants others, he creates others to come into the same relationship he has. I liken it to a divine party. If you were having the perfect party with every friend and relative you care about, why would you invite a neighbor down the street you hardly know into that party? Because you want them to enjoy what you're enjoying. And that's why God created. And so our purpose comes from an understanding of that. God created us to experience the divine party. What's happening at that party? Love, glory. And so that's to be our experience with God. And so the Christian life, we often think, is I should love God and glorify God, and that is true. But it begins by first experiencing God's love and his glory of us. You know, my son, uh, some of you may know that Natick had an E. coli scare this week, and everyone was going out and buying water, and so my son got over to BJ's immediately, before most people filled up two pallets full of bottled water and bought it all. And he gave it to his neighbors. Now first, he kept water for himself and his family. But once he had enough water for himself, he now was free to give the rest away. Uh, when you get on an airplane and the flight attendants begin to give you instructions and they talk about the the oxygen masks, and they say, if you have small children, first put the oxygen mask on yourself, then put it on your child. You need it first. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. It starts with receiving God's love. And when we are filled with his love, then it pours back to him. It's receiving God's glory. 
and when we've filled with his glory. And what I mean by that is that we know we are treasured by him. We know we are important. We know that we matter. Then we can start to treasure and honor others. See, this is one of the reasons we at this church believe in gospel-centered teaching. Gospel-centered teaching is not simply we're all going to share the gospel. Gospel-centered teaching is that every day we need to stay connected to the foundation of God's love and God's glory because we see that and receive that at the cross of Jesus Christ more than anywhere else. How do we know how deeply we are loved God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. God demonstrates his love toward us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. How do we understand how important and valuable we are? It's by looking at the price that God and Jesus, God the Son, would pay for us. Not gold or silver or precious stones, but the blood of Jesus Christ himself. God gave his son because he, for our lives, because he valued us and treasures us so much. It's when we fill ourselves with that truth, we've got all the water we need to begin to give it outward. And first, we give it back to God. We love him, and we glorify him. We honor him. We make him the most important thing in our lives. We treasure him in everything and we follow him. See, God calls for our worship not because he needs it, but because it's right and because we need it. Because if we want the joy that Jesus has that's not dependent on circumstances, then we worship God and honor him. The essence of God is that love. What value is most highly treasured in our culture? Love. Why is that? Because we've evolved from apes? Or is it because we were created by a God who the very essence of him is love? Knowing God begins to under explain life for us. We know our purpose is to first receive God's love and glory and return it to him. But what should our relationship with others be like? Well, at that divine party, it isn't just me and God. There's other people. And so how do I relate to other people? How am I supposed to? The same way the Father relates to the Son. We are to love each other. And our songs say it, all you need is love. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. Where is the love? We, we all cry out for that because we were meant to experience that with God and one another. And that Trinitarian experience is pictured most specifically in two relationships, marriage, where two become one. It says, when God created, he said it created humanity in his image. And then it goes on, male and female, he created them. You see, the image of God isn't simply one individual. It's an individual in relationship with someone else. 
man and woman together form that image of God. And marriage is to picture that, where we relate to one another, we love one another, we champion one another the way the Father and Son do it with each other. That other relationship is us, the church of Jesus Christ. Many members, one body. Three in one. Many members as one. And if you really look, put on Trinitarian glasses, you will see that all of the one another statements, the way we are to treat one another, is the type of relationship that the Father and Son have with each other. When I understood that, that changed my entire perspective about church. It wasn't just I should follow these commands. It was to experience and feel for you and for each other as Father and Son do. And we can go on. What is, what's prayer all about? It's not about getting a Santa Claus list to have our needs met by him. It's about relationship with God. That's why we praise him, we're glorifying him. That's why we live out or we, we unite with him in our prayers. It's not my kingdom come, it's thy kingdom come. And yes, we pray for our needs. Give us our daily bread because we want to experience the goodness of God. Not by just happening it, but the fact that we've prayed for it and we've connected with God about it. And what, what's the reading of the Bible? Is it simply getting through three chapters a day so we make our way through it in one year? Is it about looking for the rules and regulations? No, it is about God himself. Every time we read the Bible, we should say, what am I seeing about God? What's evangelism? Is it about getting other people into heaven? No, it's about bringing other people into the same relationship as the Father and Son, into the perichorus of where they love and glorify God and live in relationship with him and one another. And what is sin? Is sin breaking the rules is it getting a 95 on, a, out of, on your test? You failed because you didn't get the 100%? No. It's relational. Sin is relational. Sin is about turning from God and his fulfillment of us to other people and other things to find fulfillment. It is us turning to another lover to find fulfillment. It's adultery. It's us turning to another idol, worshiping another God to fulfill us. It's idolatry. That's why it breaks the heart so much, not because we didn't get all the questions right, but because we have betrayed our God and turned to other things to fill what God is fulfilling in us. We could go on and on. And I will give us one more. What are the commandments of God about? Are they the rules that set up the test to see whether we could get in or not? No. Jesus was asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? His response was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. But there's a second that's just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. God, one another, love. Then he continues and says, all the law and prophets are fulfilled in these. And what he's saying there is, every command of God is either an expression of how to love God and honor him, or how to love one another and honor them. See, it's only when we begin to see and are grounded in the very nature and essence of God that life comes alive and that we have the light of life. Our nation is in trouble. We've lost, if we ever had a foundation, we've left it. We can pray that our nation turns back to God, sees that foundation. Let's do that. But we can begin to live out the life that God meant us to live out. We can live consistently through the Spirit of God with what life is meant to be from the Creator God. And then we can tell others that that is the way. And we can point them to the love of the cross that's in the cross of Jesus Christ so they can be filled and start to now live in an overflow of the love of Christ in their lives. That's when hate and division is changed into love and unity. Our Father, we thank you for your word we thank you for the uh, Gospel of John in particular that just gives us these insights into you. May you burn them into our hearts so that we do live by them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.